This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 131 of the DeFacto Leaders podcast. In K-12 education, there's been a recent push to go digital, and many educators are wondering if people creating the products have the kids' best interest in mind, especially in the for-profit space. That's why I invited Meg Hearn to episode 131 to get a behind-the-scenes perspective of curriculum and tech products for kids. This past year, I have made a lot of connections in the ed tech space, as well as with people who work for curriculum companies, and it has been eye-opening, and I have to say that it does make me feel optimistic. Even though when I was in the schools, I was very frustrated with the features of the different products available, and I always felt there was something that I could have used that I didn't have. And I know there's some skepticism about for-profit companies and why curriculums get chosen, but 
I have to say, it did restore my faith this past year when I've connected with people who are working on these products and really do have kids' best interests in mind. So to tell you a little bit about Meg, she is an educator with over 20 years of experience. She currently leads a highly collaborative and growing team of curriculum specialists that enhance the Imagine Learning Math core curriculums. In her previous role as Director of Mathematics Curriculum at Age of Learning, she worked with teams that created digital curriculum content for educational games serving learners ages 2 through 10. Before that, she saw the development of a K-5 digital curriculum at Learn Zillium, and her work in the public schools preceded her foray into the ed tech world. As a mathematics coach in the Howard County Public School System in Maryland, she facilitated school-based professional development with elementary school teachers, focusing on developing conceptual understanding through problem-based teaching. She's been published in the School Library Journal by the ISTE and has spent over 10 years as an adjunct professor teaching gaming and education and mathematics methods courses at the graduate level. She holds a mathematics instructional leadership graduate certificate, a postmaster certificate in administration and supervision from Johns Hopkins University, a master's degree in education from McDaniels College, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland. Her bachelor's degree was in design, not education, and she's still applying what she learned from her design training to this day, which is something that we talk about in the interview. In this conversation, we discuss how ed tech product teams work and how they test their products to make sure they're helping kids learn. The balancing acts K-12 ed tech companies face, including content, design, application features, usability, and other factors that impact accessibility and equity, how to design a learning experience, including prioritizing accountability, alignment, and evidence-based practices while still making learning a creative, engaging experience for both the learner and the teacher. And then we wrap up by talking about why math can be a prime opportunity to work on executive functioning and why executive functioning work is already embedded into many math curriculums. Plus, we discuss early math skills kids need to thrive. All of the views that she shares in this interview are hers and do not reflect the views of any companies that she has worked for or is currently working for. Before I get going, I wanted to mention the Time Tracking Journal, a strategy for improving executive functioning, but really what it does is gives you a tool that helps you to model the internal language and thought processes that kids need in order to complete multi-step tasks. Many of the times that I talk to people who are working in the schools and they say that their students are struggling to complete tasks in their classroom, things that they don't want to do, they're seeing a lot of avoidance, and they say, well, we're already working on executive functioning because we're, we're giving checklists and visuals and we're helping kids fill out their assignment books and they're still missing assignments. And many people think that planners and checklists are tools that help build executive functioning, but really what they are are tools that people can use effectively when they're already engaging in good executive functioning skills. It actually takes a lot of internal planning to use strategies like a checklist effectively. And so there are some skills that we need to teach in order to be able to benefit 
from a lot of those metacognitive strategies we use for organizing. And I help you build some of those skills in the time tracking journal. To learn more about it, you can go to drkarendudikbrannon.com backslash time journal. Now, please enjoy this interview with Meg Hearn. So today I am joined by Meg Hearn. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks, Karen. Very exciting to be here. So I w- as we were discussing beforehand, I wasn't even really sure how to introduce you because you have done so many different things in your career. So I think it would just be best for you to just kind of tell us about yourself, all the different things that you've done in the past and what you're doing now, and then we can kind of dive into some questions. Yeah, that sounds great. So let's see, I classify myself as an educator. Um, I have been in education for over 20 years, uh, education and ed tech. Uh, Before I ever got into education, I was actually uh, in design. And I really feel like that little little bit about myself is uh, applicable to a lot of things that I that I did in the classroom that I that I did as a coach and also I use those uh, skills and competencies today in um, designing instructional uh, experiences. So that is uh, the short story. Um, I I was a public school educator. I started as a first grade teacher and then taught fifth grade. And after those experiences, I went into coaching and I coached uh, mathematics in school settings. So did a lot of co-teaching and uh, worked with a lot of the stakeholders, including uh, those at home, supporting from home, uh, other folks, teachers, administrators, um, school counselors, anyone basically who worked with the ch- child and supported the child. And that has just been been my joy all along. And so we, I know that this past year, I've learned a lot about the ed tech world as I've been, you know, considering different career options for myself and just learning about some of the different products that are being used in the school districts, because there's so much going on with curriculum reform right now. And I just think it's really important for people to understand that. Can you just, it's funny because I was having a conversation with a a colleague of mine where I was like, Hey, I've been looking into ed tech. And he was like, what's ed tech? So if people, can you kind of just give us an explanation of what what an ed tech company is? Yeah, so it can be, the the description I think can be as simple as any company that serves education and educational purposes that leverages technology in doing so. So that that would really be my description of what ed tech is. Yeah. And And there's tons out there right now, I'm aware. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, is that it can be education as in ed tech companies that specifically serve the K-12 market. And then there are ed tech companies that are even broader, like like Udemy, like technically I'm an ed tech company because I provide educational products for people who are um, wanting to learn. It happens to also be in the K-12 market. So it is really an interesting space. And I think what what intrigues me about it the most is that back in the day when we were doing everything on paper, 
the amount of time it took to update instructional materials versus the functionality and the, the rate that we can change things now that things are digital, it's much different. Not that it doesn't take time when you have a big team of developers creating a product, but we can do it a lot faster than when you have to distribute print materials. Yeah, that's true. My my first experience in EdTech was with a company called LearnZillion, and we were developing a digital curriculum, uh, K through eight for mathematics. And we had some PDFs that you could print in our product, but it was largely a digital experience. There weren't, let's say, uh, print books. But then LearnZillion kind of shifted and decided to include illustrative mathematics as part of their offering. Illustrative mathematics is an open education resource. Basically what that means is it's free uh, to use uh, for anybody. And we were, we are, so I'm with Imagine Learning now. And that's sort of a funny story because I started with LearnZillion. I left and went elsewhere. And uh, then I worked with Twig Education and Twig was acquired by Imagine Learning. Imagine Learning also had acquired LearnZillion. So I'm sort of back in the fold where yeah. I started in EdTech, which is kind of hilarious. But to, to kind of go down the line of um, how print matters, it's from an equity standpoint in terms yeah. of K-12 education. Mm-hmm. And some some states, such as California, have laws around having print available. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So long story short, started thinking it was going to be all digital and change was easy because you just make it digitally and it gets fed out very quickly. Uh, But now I'm sort of in that world of print as well, where if something's in print, it lives there for a number of years before it gets printed again. Yeah. That's sort of uh, a trade-off. Yeah, well, and I know that there there's so many, and I understand the 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 idea that we want to leverage digital tools because of their benefits and their functionalities that print doesn't offer, but also we don't want to lose what it's like to hold print materials just from a mm. like a cognitive standpoint. And then there's the equity piece, which gets really um, complicated because it's it's the distribution and do we have access to the the iPads or the the devices or I mean that happens with print materials too so there's that as well where the like if the print materials are hard to update and a school doesn't have resources to buy something and update their materials then there's that problem as well so I'm curious what like what you've experienced from that standpoint or what you've seen happening as far as how all these things are you know, being able to be distributed to districts. Yeah, that's, it is uh, definitely complicated. Different districts have different needs um, around their, their print. Uh, Some districts that we work with have needs around translation. Um, Mm, And so beyond translating into Spanish, because that is, that is something that we do um, pretty widely in our curriculum but it goes beyond that. You know, uh, I was in a district that was telling me they had a large influx of uh, Ukrainian folks and and they wanted things translated into 
that language. And then also just like many other districts uh, that we work with that say we, we have 40 different languages and we want everything translated into those 40 different languages. And from an equity standpoint, you know, I say, yeah, my heart goes out to that. I want that for them. I want them to have the the materials in their languages. But on the other hand, uh, from a product standpoint of um, providing those, those kinds of translations, um, it doesn't, it doesn't always uh, work out. Yeah. Can you explain, like, so I I know that we've talked in previous conversations about product management and tech teams and how they work. Um, So, and I know that a lot of people listening, if they're, they're educators, they see the end result. They're seeing like, what is, what does this look like when my students log into this, this program? But there's all kinds of stuff that has to happen on the back end to make sure that the tech application works correctly. There's the curriculum, the sequencing, there's the the research behind it and the strategies and then the like the all all different pieces that have to work together. So can you talk a little bit about what happens on the back end when you have a product, you need to keep updating it and you have to prioritize what updates are the priority and how do we make that happen? And that's, I mean, essentially what product management is. <laughs> yeah. And that is so hard. So I am not officially a product manager. My title at Imagine Learning is uh, principal curriculum director for okay. core math K-12. So I I work with a team of curriculum specialists. And so in terms of what we do on my team is there's a lot of consideration around the curriculum. And and some folks are like, well, I am illustrative math wrote that curriculum. It's open education resource. You just took it in and kind of spat it back out in, in your uh, platform or application. And that's not necessarily true. There are decisions that have to be made around, you know, if you take this from print to digital, what what decisions do we make around where we put uh, teaching notes? Mm-hmm. What, how we call out specific things that are supportive for English language learners, uh, special education students. Um, how do we address UDL, etc.? So all of that is something that we take into consideration on my team. And then on top of that, you know, how do we enhance the digital experience? so that it is developmentally appropriate for the learner at every level. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking kindergarten through 12th grade. There's a lot of different um, developmental levels there. So you have to think about that. Um, and then as we work with product, we sit on the product team, my team. And so we work very closely with uh, the product director and product managers and and. So we have to work with them around prioritizing, as yeah. you mentioned before. And so what gets prioritized, why, how, um, those are decisions that can be really difficult if you're somebody who's spent a lot of time in schools and you have this equity lens. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. it's about, you know, where are we selling the most? As as hard as that might be to hear, sometimes that that's a prioritization. Yeah. Um, and, so, if and then I of were... course, you know, you have you have um, 
your IT folks and and people who are you know the designers of of the digital experience when it comes to the back end, like how do we make improvements to digital design and how that comes across? Those are questions that that they answer, and mm-hmm. we sit on cross functional teams and have uh, cross functional um, basically. Uh, workshops and and so in doing so you get to learn about what everybody's different responsibilities are and there's just so much that goes into creating um the digital experience that i I can't stress that enough it's it's really very complicated and Mm -hmm. but at least where i sit everyone is uh super bought in and excited about what we're doing and really you know what brings a lot of people to edtech is that they get to have an impact and they get to touch lives of learners and everyone who supports learners and that makes you know that makes you feel like you have a real purpose in life yeah i have i have so many so i have a couple different questions and directions i want to go with what you just said so there's the 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 whole idea of communicating with the product team. And then I want to ask them things about the design aspect, because I know that you have a background in design and just kind of helping people what, understand what that is. And then, you know, the idea of user testing. But I, I definitely can relate to that because I know that when I was in the school, there were many times when I was working directly with students, I have this full caseload and I'm thinking, wow, I wish I had a product that would help me do this or and i'm i'm thinking of all these different ideas but you don't have the the resources to create something like that i had no idea even where to start with creating that with with this whole enterprise and these people that know how to handle all the technical aspects and then even just the other things that you have to consider such as the curriculum and the sequencing and all of that and so i can definitely relate to feeling like I really want to be able to work on something like this, but how do I even make it happen? And if you are in the ed tech world, you might be one piece of it, but at least you have all these other people and these teams that are helping you make it happen. Whereas sometimes when you're just, when you're working directly with students, it's challenging to know like, here's this thing that I need and I don't, I can't make it happen because I don't know how. So that's uh that's what helped me or what made me get really interested in the idea of curriculum and ed tech and all of that. So from the product standpoint, I wanted to just kind of like make sure that I'm understanding this correctly and just explain it to the people who might be listening. So if you're on the team that is thinking about curriculum and let's say that you have, um, you're getting a request from a district that says, we want this this function or this this tool translated into this other language. And then you communicate that to the product team, right? And so you're one of the, the product team sits there and they talk to all these different departments and they're like, okay, what are all the different requests that we're getting? So they get the request from you and then they're probably getting requests from other people from other departments. And then the design people probably have information that says, oh, this you know, this button is in the wrong place and kids don't know where to click. And so we need to change this. So they have this whole list of things that they need to do. And then the tech people and the teams that are managing that are saying, all right, 
here's the order and this is how we're going to get it done. And I'm sure that there's all kinds of things as far as how long will this take? How much money will it take? Is it going to impact the things that are bringing in revenue so that we can keep going and all of those things? And so you're the person that's kind of there like, this is a priority, but you know that there's all these other things. I mean, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, it's it is a, a little bit of crazy town like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we do we do try to you know um, herd the cats in in a way yeah. by putting all of the requests into what we call product board, and mm-hmm. so on that product board we can see you know we can quantify how many times this particular request comes in, who it comes from, you know, and, uh, you know, put the weight on it that's appropriate Mm -hmm. based on all of that different information. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we also have designed into our application a button, give feedback. Okay. So it's really easy to just click that button and give some feedback, which is, Great, because we do read every single thing that comes in and we do sort it and, you know, set up the categories and uh, try to prioritize based on, you know, how often certain requests come in. And again, like you said, I mean, it does depend on how how impactful the change is going to be. Mm -hmm. That's, That's always something that is important. Some things are maybe uh, maybe won't be impactful to our bottom line or our profits, but they might be really impactful to usability and uh, uh, the learner experience or the teacher experience. And, and that that matters greatly to us as well. Yeah. Like the whole idea of the people that are already paying for your products, it's going to make it better for them. And um, I think that it's kind of interesting there with the, the ethics aspect of it, which I know that a lot of, you know, my friends in the therapy world always struggle with where it's, if you do what's ethical and best for students, that does end up being good for business because their people are getting the results that they want. And you do have to think about a for-profit company has to think about revenue because they can't function and continue to provide products for learners if they don't have that in mind. So I think that that's where it just, you know, I, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned user research and that's a really important aspect yeah. of, of what we do. So not only do we can conduct um, research, research with uh, our actual users, um, we will go into schools and visit uh, our districts that are using our materials mm-hmm. and, that provides us with, and so we had a great tour uh, this past spring where we had cross-functional team visit districts, and so it was um, not it was curriculum, it was product, it was um, folks on the design team and folks on the um, application uh, engineering side. So a lot of different people went into different districts and got to observe, got to see how. Classrooms are using our materials, got to talk to kids, which was wonderful. Uh, that's my favorite thing is when the kids get to give you a little bit of feedback. Um, 
district level folks, as well as teachers, just kind of getting the perspective of, of everyone in the moment. I think that's really valuable, but it's also valuable to put something in front of people and say, you know, we have a research advisory board. And so we, we will put some materials in front of them and say, what do you think of this? Mm-hmm. What if it looked like this? Is this which one, A or B, you know, what, what, what looks better? And that research advisory board is uh, typically made up of lots of different kinds of folks, including teachers, uh, including um, administrators, coaches, district level people, just kind of the gamut of of the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And then if it has to do with uh, family support or uh, home to school engagement, that then we would include families that we would uh, ask and caregivers that we ask questions about which they need to support learning and and hopefully build bridges from home to the school. So really it's just a lot of both qualitative and quantitative. So you're 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 interviewing people, you're talking to people, you're giving them a chance to give feedback. And then I imagine there's some more, I don't know, hard data on the back end to see like what kinds of things are you able to see on the back end as far as like is how how people are using the products and yeah. like can they find things when they're when they're in there clicking around and things like that <laughs> yep absolutely all of that is tracked on the back end uh one one thing we heard a while back was sort of around engagement and student yeah. engagement and and we have decided to create a suite of inspire math films that don't give away the mathematics within the unit, but really kind of whet your appetite for it as a Mm -hmm. student. So the films are set very much real world. They have all kinds of different um, applications for uh, through steam, you know, science, technology, engineering, art, Mm -hmm. and mathematics. So all the, all of those tie-ins, um, and they're really, they have been very impactful. And so we've seen use of those in our platform, our application kind of go up, um, mm-hmm. that kind of definitely go up. And uh, so we so we know that they're using them. We've produced the first films were for kindergarten through fifth grade. And we release, released those this year. And so the next school year coming, we'll have six through eight. And we're just going to keep that story going through the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So we'll just keep on making them for, for all the curriculum that we have for mathematics. Yeah. What do you mean when you say you're keeping the story going that like the project, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. And I, I think there are elements in curriculum that kind of tell a story about the curriculum. And so that's really what I mean when I say films are part of the story of the curriculum. So, you know, we are, we are adding to that story in a way that, uh, you know, just like if you tell a, a story to a friend, it's it's this is this is part of the description of the curriculum and what makes it what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's really a number of different ways that you can tell is this product that we're putting in front of people helping them? Is it doing what we intend to do? And is there this feedback loop for us to continue to improve it, allow people to give their input and continue to iterate on that to make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you have to be, you know, 
when you when you work in this uh, in this field, you have to really be always listening to who is using your materials, your product, and be humble. Mm-hmm. That is that is the truth. I mean, there's so many times where it's like you think that it's supposed to be this way, and then people just aren't using it the way that you intended, and they're not they're not getting how to use it. They're not getting to the next step. They're getting stuck or something's confusing or doesn't make sense with the way that you thought it should be laid out. And you have to change it, even if you thought it made sense the way that you had it the first time. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's iterative. Like you're, you're always thinking about how to make things better, what you can add to improve the experience, what maybe should be deprioritized. So also, so you can make the experience better. Yeah. So really what we've just described the last few minutes is what this concept of user testing, that we make something, we put it in the hands of people, we get their feedback, we continue to make it better. And there's all these different checks and balances, different ways of measuring it. So that we're looking at hard numbers and qualitative feedback to, to understand what those numbers mean and what we might be missing by looking at just the numbers and all of those types of things. So I know that you originally did not start in education. You started in instructional design. So can you tell us a little bit about what what that field is, what those skills are, and how it how it fits into all of this that um, relates to creating educational products? So I actually didn't start in instructional design. I started oh, okay. in apparel design. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was my bachelor's degree from University of Maryland. And um, I I spent some time in the apparel industry and then transitioned to education. So it was a huge shift. Everybody asked me, oh, my gosh, it seems to have no relationship. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, I automatically made that jump. Just (laughs) I assumed. But I will say I, you know, one of the things that helped me make the leap uh, was I knew, I just know that I love helping people and I love especially working with with kids and anyone who works with kids. That's just something that has always brought me joy. And so uh, how do I how do I use what I learned in design uh, to impact, you know, what I do now? Um, all along the line, I think when I taught, you have to design a lesson. You know, um, we didn't uh, we didn't always have a curriculum that we were working from. So sometimes you have to design that experience for your learners. And so taking into account um, what brings joy to learners, what is for me, what element of play can I bring into it? because I think that there's an importance of play in education as well. Um, and, you know, you design the environment that, that students sit in. You design uh, how you work with parents. You design how you work with administrators and the, the greater school district. When I was a coach, you know, I designed the program all myself. There was There's no... Uh, book that says here, this is how you coach. And and so going into my first year coaching, I had to design those experiences. And really, for me, it was a lot about listening to 
what are the pain points and the problems that we have with this particular classroom or teacher or um, community? Like how, how do we help support around what those pain points are and design experiences, design the environment, uh, design, uh, you know, something as simple as family math night. It sounds very simple, but there's a lot of designing that goes into that. And if you want to be intentional around what is clustered together and why you're clustering it together. Um, and then now in my role, uh, currently, what color plays mm-hmm. a part in, in design and color plays a part in uh, how we communicate um, and also just sort of designing the entire experience around um, what feels balanced. So there's visual balance, there's color balance, there's um, size of the write-on lines for the print. Yeah. There's like, there's so much that goes into it that I feel like I'm constantly drawing upon my training as a designer in, in my roles all, all the way along the way in my career. Yeah. So really it's, so there's, when we think about education and even in therapy, it's like, what's the technique? And I'm this utilitarian person. And I, you know, I remember being like, "Eh, that's just fluff. It's just the visuals. Who cares how it looks? But especially when you think about accessibility, it matters how it looks. Um, The, the contrast of the colors and the size or where things are laid out. I mean, in a digital product, when you're thinking about eye gaze and scanning and where, like how, when you look at a page, can you, does the way that it's laid out, draw your eyes down the page instead of just overwhelm people? I'm working on on that all the time. And a lot of the content that I make where I know that I write a lot and I have very text heavy and it's just this big block of text. Well, that's not Mm. good design. So I'm always trying to think about how to work on that. And when you're thinking about a physical environment, just the the arrangement and does it flow? And I mean, you can get into um, all kinds of things with design. I know that. Um, so when I went to Disney World, I thought I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the worst. But they have designed down to a T, like the whole experience of when they have their people talk to you and the way that things are arranged and the way that they guide you through the lines and all the things that they have in the lines. And then they have the shade and like this whole experience. And so I think that, yeah, I mean, obviously evidence-based practice is so important, but if you don't have all those other aspects, I mean, it's it like it, it causes these bottlenecks. Yeah. And I think that evidence-based practice has to be intertwined with, yeah. with design. You know, there are certainly, I mean, just, thinking about on on the in the digital aspect uh if you go to a slide that has content on it Mm -hmm. then for a student facing and a student having this experience uh maybe they maybe they want the text to speech where do you put that button what's Mm -hmm. the most um the most convenient and aesthetic place to put that button it's it's all intertwined I wanted to take a quick break here to talk about the time tracking journal. So in a few minutes in this conversation, we're going to start talking about math and problem-based learning. 
And what fascinates me so much about talking with people who have expertise in math curriculum is that they're already talking about executive functioning, but they're not exactly using those words. And it's really interesting to me how some of this is already embedded into the work that's being done in curriculums that require kids to use problem solving in multiple steps. But if you have a child who's experiencing executive dysfunction, chances are they might need some additional support, modeling, and strategies above and beyond the standard curriculum. And that's why I created the Time Tracking Journal, which is a strategy for improving future planning and executive functioning. Particularly, it emphasizes how you can teach kids to visualize the end goal, to sense time while they're working through multiple steps, and to talk themselves through tasks that might be repetitive, non-preferred, or challenging. And many times, when kids need support with multi-step tasks, adults step in and actually do the executive functioning for them by just telling them the next steps. And while this is well-meaning, it doesn't help build problem-solving skills because you're doing the problem-solving for kids. There is a way that you can provide support and scaffolding, but challenge kids at the same time. And that is why I created the Time Tracking Journal. To learn more about it, you can go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash time journal. Now let's get back to the interview. Yeah, it really is. So, um, I mean, I think that when you are thinking about the priorities and like, do we translate this into a different language or do we add this button or do we add this, make this design change that like maybe, I mean, I could see how if you had some priorities like that, where it's that the design thing could actually be a bigger issue for all of your users. And aside from this other thing that seems important, but you have to pick something to go, go on and and execute on before you get to the other things. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to make sacrifices along the way, you know, every, not every, not everything that you want to do is going to get done right away. And so, yeah. well, that's, that's education. Just like anything in life. <laughs> I know, I know. So I know you've done a lot with, and, and there's this kind of, I, I noticed this push and pull in the professional community where it's like, there's curriculum, you know, curriculum's important and districts want curriculum because that's a good way to form alignment across yeah. your, your buildings and, make sure that you're you know, you, uh, addressing things like accountability and you've got your good operating procedures and all of that. But then I know that there's sometimes pushback because it people feel like, well, it's it's taking some freedom and creativity out of the the experience of being a teacher. And then there's kind of like, well, we don't, there's there's curriculum, but then we also need to give people the skills to, either use that curriculum or to iterate and come up with their own things. And I know that you've had a lot of experience with the coaching and professional development side too. So how do you see these two things coming together and, um, you know, kind of filling the needs of what's going on right now in the schools? Oh, my gosh, that is so big. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's like the evidence-based <laughs> because... and design thing where it's like, they, they're both important. 
because a factor that you didn't mention that I think is really, really critical right now is our our overwhelming teacher staffing issues oh, in this country. Yeah. yeah. So so there's that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to 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 think about that, especially through the eyes of curriculum and professional development and how, you know, how do we serve those teachers who are most certainly overworked right now. Mm -hmm. And there are just so many demands are put on, on teachers at this point in time more than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, It it is really, it's a tightrope, you know, that you have to walk, I think. And so in terms of my perspective on curriculum, and I'm going to say really honestly, the illustrative math curriculum, what I think is great about it is, yes, it's a provided curriculum that if your district has adopted it, you know, that it might be a shift for you because it's different from traditional curriculum. It is all problem-based. And so problem-based learning is um, is a shift for a lot of people from the traditional uh, way of teaching and learning mathematics. Everything is is pretty much taught through problems. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of that, I think, is you have creativity as a teacher because one of one of the one of the great ways of being creative, I think, is even if you're handed something, and like I remember being handed something as a first grade teacher and told you're going to teach this curriculum, and it was very scripted, it was very mm-hmm. prescribed. You're going to do it this way. You're going to say this, all that. That was difficult, but I brought my flair to it by bringing in elements that I knew that my particular students were interested in. So that's the thing. Like as a teacher, you know, who's in front of you, mm-hmm. you know what their interests are. And that's something that we, the creators of the curriculum and the curricular materials don't know, but you as a teacher, you get to know that. And that's a way that you can be creative. So you can certainly bring in those elements of like I, my class uh, at that time was very interested in music mm-hmm. and uh, theater kinds of things. So we, we did a lot of like little musicals around the curriculum and that was a way to bring in their interests and, and uh, to provide a little joy to something that could have been uh, very dry. Yeah. I love, uh, it was Seth Godin, I think, was he, in one of his most, his books that have come out the last couple of years, he talks about constraints and how sometimes having constraints make you more creative because if you have too many different options, it's hard to move forward. And so sometimes when you're given these little things to work around, it actually helps you come up with ideas and it can keep you funneled in so that you can move forward with it. So I'm always intrigued by that idea of, well, like you, if you have complete chaos, it's really hard to be creative. Like if you don't have any curriculum or guidelines, I'd imagine that that would be very hard as well. And so that's why I understand why people want to go on teachers, pay teachers and get stuff that's, you know, printed out for them, even though it might feel like, you know, then you've got to adapt it in all these different ways, or maybe you don't know if it's completely aligned. Like I I get how 
You just want to funnel it down and have some decisions made for you so that you can actually access your creative side, you know? Yeah. And so you can, you can gather the information, you know, that you need to gather about your students, like yeah. formatively, like how, what do they, what do they already come in with? What is their, what are their assets? And then, you know, where do I start with them? That That's yeah. important information. Uh, we have a great routine in our curriculum called notice and wonder. And so speaking to creativity, it's, it basically, it could be an image. It could be a set of expressions. It could be a lot of different things, but, but something is shown to students, a prompt. And we say, what do you notice? What do you wonder? And this is a great place for creativity because one, you're going to get tons of creative answers from responses from your students. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you notice is, I mean, that's so open-ended. Everybody can notice something, right? And what do you wonder? Everyone can wonder something. So I think that's a great place for creativity as well. Yeah. So um, I, I wanted to go back to ask you a little bit about the problem, the thing that you said about it being problem based, but something that I have noticed as I have been talking to people who are specifically involved in math curriculum. So I do a lot of work with the literacy side and I do work with the cognitive side and think about things like executive functioning. And I know that. So a lot of schools, when they think about executive functioning, they think about like organizers and planners and things like that, which is part of it, but not all of it. But I have noticed as I've talked to math teachers, there's language embedded in what they say and what they do with their curriculum that like they're not using the word executive functioning, but they're it, they're falling under the umbrella of it. So the idea of resilience and persistence through challenges, the idea of problem solving the idea, even what you just said, the notice and wonder, one of the things that I teach when I'm, you know, thinking about executive functioning is that you don't, you do want to teach kids steps. So there's that aspect, but you also don't always want to just tell them the steps because if they're not stopping and reflecting and noticing and looking around, then they're not going to access and have the opportunity to use executive functioning. And so right there, what you said, the idea of just noticing I mean, reading the room, that's that's executive functioning. So I I mean, I'm I'm curious what other kinds of things are built into math curriculums where it's it's like, you know, a lot a lot of the executive functioning people are like, nobody's working on this in the schools. And I'm like, wow, but I, I think that there are some people who are. It's just they're not calling it that. So are there other things in that idea of problem solving where it, it does fit under that? umbrella. Most certainly. Um, and especially, uh, so I'd, our curriculum, elective math, uh, has built into it the mathematical practices. And so mm-hmm. some of the things that you've mentioned just now are mathematical practices and are yeah. really important to, to mathematics. Um, another, another one of those is look for and make use of structure, you know, mm-hmm. making, yeah, making connections across, you know, within a problem, but also outside of the problem. So what else does this connect to? Yeah. How, you know, in my life, how, how is this important? And those are, those are things I think that, definitely connect to executive functioning. Yeah. Um, 
the relevance is oh, really, yeah. really important. You know, if something resonates with a, with a learner, then it's going to stick. And that stickiness is really important in education. So that's why the, the problems are really well thought out and um, bring in different aspects of different cultures and, and art and music and just across a lot of different uh, areas that would be exciting to kids. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that that joy is also a huge part of executive functioning because when you feel excited about something, joyful about something, you're pretty driven to make connections and to, to think about it um, in a way that makes sense. And so making sense of problems uh, and persevering when solving them. Yeah. Another mathematical practice. Well, and the other thing too, is like seeing the path forward and seeing the end can make it way easier to persist. What does it mean when you say, so there's, there's kind of the traditional way versus the problem solving way. What's, what are the differences between those two ways of teaching math? So problems in problem-based learning are typically either open-ended. So many different appropriate responses or um, have multiple pathways to solution. Okay. And so that is every single problem that was crafted in the curriculum has that the one of those two aspects, if not both. How do the basic skills of math, like the, you know, again, I know that we've all done the, the flashcards of your addition facts and your subtraction facts. How do you fit the two of those things in so that it's, you get the basic foundation, but also you're adding that problem solving element. Yeah, that's, that's the conceptual understanding piece uh, mm -hmm. that is really critical to before you get to procedural fluency, you have to have this conceptual understanding. I mean, yeah. you can memorize your facts. I did once upon a time, I memorized all my facts, but you know, I didn't see any connections amongst mm -hmm. them. I had really didn't know that I could figure out four times nine by knowing four times 10. I had really no idea that I could do that. Yeah. And so, you know, what is the, what is the well-crafted learning progression um, of, you know, learning about, well, I'll just start really, really simple in kindergarten because this throws a lot of people, you know, counting and cardinality and how important counting is. And knowing whether or not your students in front of you have one-to-one -one correspondence. So mm -hmm. they need lots of opportunities to count collections of objects, different size collections, and it increases, you know, over time. And how does that counting connect to knowing something about addition and subtraction? Mm -hmm. Because they're, it's definitely connected. And if you've spent enough time doing lots and lots of counting, then you're going to be more successful with understanding addition and subtraction. Yeah. So two two questions that are popping up for me. Can you talk a little bit about what procedural fluency is? Because there's this, it with again, with executive functioning, the, the idea of ideational fluency, being able to come up with a lot of different options. But what are you talking about when you're talking about procedural fluency? So with procedural fluency, you're looking at being able to solve a problem um, 
with efficiency. Okay. And uh, it's not always just being fast at something. Mm -hmm. So, so if you have an efficient way of solving something that might be, that might look different for a first grader than it does for a third grader. You know, if I'm doing, if I'm adding two numbers that it's going to look different if I'm a first grader being proficient and uh, procedurally fluent with that. You can use any algorithm. It doesn't have to be the standard algorithm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's what makes sense to you because you have that conceptual understanding already. So you can understand how you're going to go about this. You know, it's not your, it's not your first time seeing it. Um, You have, you have had some opportunities to problem solve already. So now you kind of have some strategies in your tool toolbox that makes sense to you that you can use. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a number line uh, strategy. Maybe it's a bar diagram strategy. Maybe it's, I'm going to get out some discrete counters and I'm going to put these two together and find the total. Uh, And, you know, younger kids, it might be, they count all and older kids, they might count on. So there's, you know, there are a lot of different uh, aspects to procedural fluency, but in short, I would say it's having an efficient and effective approach to solving a problem. Yeah. Because I could see how it's like speed is a factor, but it's not the only factor. You need the context because sometimes if you go fast and you got the wrong answer or you didn't get to the end goal and didn't adjust along the way and realize that your strategy was off, well, that's not efficient. So it would have been better for you to take longer in that situation. That would have been more efficient. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask about, since we were talking about early math skills, this is another thing that is that I've seen often debated. Um, I've seen it in the literacy space, and I'm sure it happens in in the math space as well. Just the idea of, uh, you know, there's play-based learning, which we know is very important that learning kids learn through play. They should continue learning through play all the way through their school experience. But this debate about, are we being too academic academic too soon? And, um, you know, we need to wait till they're developmentally appropriate for those certain skills. And then the other side of the argument is, well, the way that they get, a, get you know, learn those skills is by having exposure to them. So how are they going to learn those skills if we don't expose them? And then it does become the equity issue because then they don't have the foundational skills to be able to succeed in their curriculum beyond. So, how do you navigate that? And what are some of the things that should be happening in those early years, like kindergarten, first grade, and, you know, finding that balance? Yeah, so kindergarten, first grade, some things that should be happening is kindergarten, lots and lots and lots of counting, lots mm-hmm. of um, being curious about shapes and mm-hmm. objects and quantities and yes they probably will will learn to write in kindergarten pick up a pencil and write numerals and letters and such and that's I feel is is appropriate and not different from what has been going on for ages in our country Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so uh we we I mean I, I really believe that lots and lots of counting is important looking at uh Looking at shapes 
two-dimensional, three-dimensional, um, putting things together, uh, like sets of objects and taking mm-hmm. them apart. And even uh, one of my favorite games in kindergarten that I like to play is I might have five of something. Let's just say, you know, they're uh, cubes in my hand. And I'll show them to a student, kindergartner, and I'll say, how many are there? And they'll count them and they'll say five. And then I'll say, okay, so the game is I'm going to take some of these away. I'm going to put them behind my back and hide them. And you're going to, you're going to figure out how many are behind my back. And so this is early algebra. Yeah. But, you know, and it's totally appropriate for kindergarten because they think this is a fun, fun game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, you take some, you put them behind your back and some kids have to, um, some kids just say they don't know. And that tells me a lot about that kid. And then I'll say, okay, do you want me to bring them from behind my back and show you? Well, yes, of course. So I bring them out and I show them and then say, oh, one, two, three, four, five. Oh, one, two. You had two behind your back. And so they they feel successful. It feels fun. Um, but it's really important algebraic reasoning and understanding number. And so putting all that together, those, those are some important things in kindergarten. I think in first grade, you know, developing some strategies for adding. So sometimes in kindergarten they are in first grade, they come in and they typically have to, if you ask them how, how much is three plus two, what is that amount? They would say they have to count all one, two, three, and then four, five. Others will say there's three there. I'm going to count on four or five. There's five altogether. So that's figure outable. Like they can figure that out using mm-hmm. different strategies. Yeah. First grade has, um, I think it's important to, to have those uh, number base 10 concepts that they work with um, addition and subtraction, things that are, you know, in the context that is relevant to them. That's what's really important. Mm-hmm. across all grades it's not not just kindergarten or first grade that's across all grades yeah just pulling it into something that's relevant to their life yeah. like something that they're they're interested in how important so there's i know there's with when you're thinking about the flashcards where you're drilling the math facts and in the literacy space it's it's the sight word flashcards and i know that it's not that they're bad but if, if kids don't have those basic concepts and the, the the print symbols don't mean something to them, it's not super useful. Or the other thing that comes up is is the worksheets, because there's lots of worksheets out there available for, for teachers. And I know for math, I'd imagine with the younger grades, you want you want there to be manipulatives and things that they can hold. So when is it appropriate to start using some of those two-dimensional things how can you tell if kids need to go back to things that are a little more tangible and build some of those strategies versus like, you know, drill and, you know, it, or it, is there a place for those types of things? Yeah. So I personally am not a huge fan of the drill and kill. I think mm-hmm. it creates a lot of anxiety and yeah. uh, the time tests that are, that are out there also create a lot of math anxiety. And when you talk to people and one of the questions that I like to ask people when they when they sometimes mention that they don't feel like a math person, which is a whole other subject that I could talk to you about, but um, <laughs> yeah, because I don't like when people say that too. 
say that out loud. I don't like when people think that. I feel like everyone is a math person, but again, that's a side note. Um, if you, if they say that, you know, I'll ask them, why do you really feel like that? When do you think like math got away from you? Mm-hmm. What was the moment that you remember being like, oh my gosh, oh no. <laughs> because everyone has been able to supply that moment to me. And Advanced a lot of algebra people... in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I can name the teacher. And there were several leading up that were like, I was hanging in there. They weren't, it wasn't the greatest. And then things just went. And then my statistics professor in, in, uh, in uh, my doctoral program revived me. Oh, <laughs> uh, I love it. Anyways. I love, I love to hear that there was a revival. That's the best. <laughs> there was. There was. I, lo- I like statistics. I wish I would have, I wish I would have done it. Um, but yeah, earlier on. So I wish I would have known about statistics, like in real world context. When yeah. I took it. You know what I mean? It was a lot of contrived scenarios that that were not really important to my life at the time so um but I I actually my Um, first statistics class was a complete train wreck as well um but then it when I got into a um again wonderful professor that just knew how to lay it all out and make it relevant it's just I don't know I you do need that real life context like when you're it was when I was in my doctoral program and I was trying to do a study and I was like, I have an answer to this problem. I need to understand how all these statistics are going to tell me something useful that I need to know versus when it was just all these little definitions of construct validity and all of these things. Um, yeah. Anyways, I, I I understand the idea of making it useful. So um, so if I go back to your question around yeah. <laughs> flashcards, because I really oh, yeah, do yeah. want to answer this one. <laughs> yes. Well, let's do that. I don't, we'll I, do that, and then we can wrap up. And anyway, yeah. go ahead. So I, do, I don't love flashcards. I don't love time tests. Um, I feel like they cause a lot of math anxiety and are detrimental to the learner's disposition. So that is that is has been my experience when i when i hear from people when math went wrong for them and especially when it's elementary school when they tell me it's elementary school Ugh, oh it breaks my heart for one yeah and for two like they almost always say because i had to do these time tests and memorize these things so if you have this conceptual understanding that i've been talking about you know if you have this basis of of understanding that you're putting these if it's addition, you're putting these things together. And if we're talking, you know, first grade, maybe it's it's um, 10 plus 3, and you want to put those amounts together, and you say, I know it's 10 and 3, okay, 13, counting up, or however you might know it. But enough experiences with that, with that counting and that adding and that physical, like you mentioned, manipulatives, mm-hmm. incredibly important, something to move around. Because as you do that movement, you know, you're making these connections uh, in your brain. And mm-hmm. the more you do that, the more that pathway gets solidified. So the more often you're, you add the 10 and 3, which maybe is hard for somebody, right? And so the more that you do that, the more that you come to realize, oh, my gosh, it was 13 last time, 13 the time before, 
it's been 13 every time. Now I can secure that in my brain. And that is not anything that I have to figure out anymore. Now I can be fluent with it because I've had enough experiences and enough repetitions with adding those values that I know what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now I might be able to use that to know something else. Like maybe 10 plus four is hard too, but I know that four is one more than three. So I know that it's probably going to be 14 because 14 is one more than 13. Yeah. That, that whole idea of the, the mental manipulation in your head, I can think of um, all kinds of ways that I do that where like, um, you know, like you're in the middle of um, a workout and you're like, how many reps have I done? And how many total is this going to be? And, or like when I was swimming laps, when I was a swimmer and just counting laps, and then you have to figure out how many yards it is and all of that, just the mental manipulation that needs to go with it. And then but I would always go back to the 10 when I would try to figure it out where it's like, hey, it's nine. Like, like, cause if I do four plus nine, I'm like, okay, you, you add the one and make it 10 and then it's 13. Like, that's the way that I do that in my head. And I don't know, maybe yeah. other people have different ways of doing yes. it, but <laughs> that's a strategy. 100% yeah. a strategy. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. legit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, um, we could keep going, but I know that we've been, we've been talking for a long time. And so I wanted to just ask, um, where can people, if they want to connect with you, like, where can people reach out to you if they have questions or, or anything like that? Mm, uh, okay. So generally LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Mm -hmm. So, um, that is, that is the best place to find me or, um, also, if you want to email me directly, my personal email is Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N, Hearn, H-E-A-R-N, all stuck together at gmail.com. Great. Thank you. And do you, do you ever do any other like presentations or things like that? I have done tons of presentations in, in my time and am willing to do more as the world has uh, opened up again. So it's been, it's been a while since I've done any presentations, but I feel like we are, we have vaccines now and the world is opening again. So I'm, yes. I'm happy to do presentations again. Great. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with me. Yeah. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can connect with Meg. And if you're interested in learning about a strategy for improving time management, future planning, and executive functioning during daily tasks like academic assignments or daily routines, then check out the Time Tracking Journal. To learn more, you can go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash time journal. If you are interested in being a guest for the show, or if you have a suggestion for a guest, please email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. I am always interested in talking to people who have an interesting experience that involves helping K-12 kids in some way, whether it be through working for a company that supports K-12 education, doing something in the community, or working directly in the school systems. As always, it helps me so much. 
if you share this podcast with anyone who needs it or leave me a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.